Romans, Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin." Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. Know ye not? that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members servants to uncleanness, and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members servants to righteousness unto holiness. For when ye were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now being made free from sin, and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness, and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death." But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. The text I call our attention to is verse 4. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Beloved congregation and our Lord Jesus Christ, Romans chapter 6 in the flow 
of the argument of the book of Romans gives us the second benefit of justification. The first benefit of justification is peace with God. Our sin is a declaration of war on God that provokes His wrath. And once this war is declared, there is no getting out of it. Even should you try to raise the white flag of truce by doing good works, you will find that this will not pacify God or turn away His anger. It is only as we turn from ourselves to Jesus Christ by true and living faith that we have peace with God. That's how Romans 5 begins. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first benefit, peace with God. The second benefit of justification is a new life. Now, the second benefit cannot come without the first. It is only when the war is over and there is peace that the nation begins to rebuild the cities that have been destroyed by bombs. So it is only in the context of peace with God that the Spirit begins to heal us and to restore us after the image of Jesus Christ. But when the second benefit comes, it is a work no less wonderful than the resurrection from the dead. Through the power of the cross of Jesus Christ and the Spirit who lives within us, we are made new creatures. Now, both of these benefits are visibly captured by the sacrament of baptism. Baptism is resurrection from the dead. Now, the water, of course, is only a sign and a seal, but it is a sign and a seal of what the Spirit does when He takes hold of us and infuses new life into us, heart, mind, soul, and strength. One day He will perfect this work as He raises us up in new and glorified bodies in the resurrection. But today He begins this work already as the Christian in this life begins to walk in newness of life, as our text proclaims. However, before baptism is resurrection, it must be death and burial. If there is to be a new life, there must be death to the old life. So the apostle instructs us to see in baptism a burial in the tomb of Jesus Christ where the wages of sin are paid and the power of sin is destroyed. In the perfect death of Christ, we are brought to be at peace with God through His death. But just as Christ emerged from the tomb alive after three days, so the burial of baptism gives way to the new life of resurrection. I call our attention this evening to the burial of baptism. First, we will identify the meaning of this burial of baptism. Secondly, the purpose of this burial of baptism, namely that it brings us to new life or is the way unto new life in Christ. And finally, the power of that resurrection, the glory of the Father. The burial of baptism, the meaning, the purpose and the power. What if, instead of sprinkling these children with water this evening, we lowered them into a hole in the ground and covered them with earth 
in a coffin. What if we entered church this evening not anticipating cute clothes and maybe a family photo afterwards, but a funeral? Now, of course, baptism is an occasion for celebration and it is an occasion to be marked with a family photo. However, if baptism has become for us merely a sentimental family moment, then this text ought to shock us a bit. At its root, baptism isn't really all that cute, even when it's administered to cute little girls like Ruth, Sarah, and Annabeth Flo. At its root, baptism is death and burial. That's what we read. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death. It was quite a moment when the dead body of Jesus was taken down from the cross by Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. It was with their tears that they embalmed him, wrapped him in linen, anointed him with aloes, and laid him in the tomb that was then sealed by that door. And now, as it were, our text tells us that we have likewise embalmed and entombed these children in the same grave. We have buried them by baptism. We have baptized them into death. The symbolism might stand out a bit more if we were more used to the practice of immersion. Now, we sprinkle our children with water, and if we have an adult baptism, we'll do that by sprinkling with water as well. That's a proper mode of baptism. This, the dipping in or sprinkling, teaches us, our form says. The Reformed faith teaches us that water is the essential element in the sign and seal of baptism. Whether water is applied by dipping in or sprinkling is really up to the church to decide. And in some biblical references to baptism and what baptism signifies, sprinkling better captures the symbolism. In the Old Testament, blood from the altar was sprinkled on the furniture of the tabernacle and on the people to purify them and consecrate them. And we see continuity with that symbolism when a child or an adult is sprinkled with water, which signifies the blood of Christ in baptism. Hebrews 10 verse 22 says, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, thereby clearly connecting the symbolism of sprinkling with baptism or the washing with water. It is simply not true, as Baptists claim, that the Bible only allows full immersion as a legitimate mode of baptism. We might see this text slightly differently, however, if we witnessed baptism by immersion from time to time. In the early church, baptism sometimes appears to have been administered by immersion, like John the Baptist baptizing those who came to him in the Jordan River. And what they witnessed on such occasions was a man 
or a woman who disappeared entirely underneath the water just as a dead body disappears under the earth or behind the rock of the tomb when it is buried. So the man or woman is covered by water, by the waters of baptism, visibly buried, you might say, by baptism. Now look at the last verse of chapter 6 and what it declares. And it's declaring that on the basis of what God said back in the Garden of Eden when he warned Adam and Eve not to take the forbidden fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He said, In the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And on the basis of that, the inspired writer says this in verse 23, The wages of sin is death. What sin is due, or what we are due on account of sin, is death. The wages of sin, the payment of sin, is death. Death, not only as the moment when the heart stops beating and the last breath is exhaled from the lungs. Death, not only as that split second when a living body becomes a dead body. But death, as death works in that body and carries on in that body so that that body breaks down and returns to the dust. Death as the soul disappears from the land of the living and is seen no more. Death as that whole person is cast aside, body and soul, out of the sight of God and forsaken of him. Death as that extreme form of punishment in body and soul, which is hell. Those are the wages that sin is due. Sin which is committed against the most high majesty of God. The wages of sin is death, and along with that, burial. That baptism is burial, therefore, testifies that everyone who is baptized is a sinner. Everyone who is baptized is a guilty sinner who owes the wages of sin to God. Otherwise, death and burial would not be necessary. Baptism testifies of those who are baptized that they are polluted sinners who are inclined by nature to hate God and the neighbor. Baptism testifies that we are born sinners who inherit from our parents this loathsome condition of depravity that comes to us like a hereditary disease. Baptism declares to us that we are helpless sinners, wholly incapable of doing any good and inclined to all evil in ourselves. The wages of sin is death. And as sinners, therefore, we must die. There's no getting around it. We must die and be buried. For the Christian, for the child of God, Baptism is that death and burial. And the same logic which applies to adults applies to the infants of believers. Annabeth, Flo, and Ruth, Sarah, did not understand what was happening to them as water was sprinkled on them, and they suddenly felt that cold feeling running down their face. 
And we noticed that they didn't understand because they started to wiggle and cry out a little bit. They don't either understand, just like they didn't understand what was happening to them a minute ago, they don't either understand that they are partakers of the condemnation in Adam, which comes to them through the represent, representative headship of Adam, our first father, and is passed on to them as a hereditary disease. But whether these children know it or not, they owe the wages of sin, which is death. They must die and be buried. And their death and burial must be visibly represented before the church in the sign and seal of baptism. Are you conscious, Christian fathers, Christian parents, that your children must die and be buried? Is it hard to believe when you look at those cute pink little faces and those bright eyes of those precious infants that they are anything other than innocent? That they owe the wages of sin? But it's true. Baptism declares that about our children. They're conceived and born in sin. These daughters were propagated from their parents with a vicious nature that is a nature given to vice. They must die. They must be buried. All of our children, if they are covenant children, must die and be buried in baptism. However, the burial of baptism, our text declares, is burial together with Christ. When a body disappears beneath the waters of baptism, we need to think of that person not just being lowered down into a grave, as it were, but being lowered 2,000 years into the past. We need to see that person being embalmed and wrapped in the same linen wrappings and the same spices and aloes that wrapped and embalmed the body of the Savior. We need to find in her hands and in her feet the marking of the nails of the same cross upon which Jesus was crucified. We need to think of him or her as sealed behind the same door of the tomb to remain silent in the same darkness that the Christ laid in silence for three days and three nights. For the tomb of Jesus is not his tomb alone. The tomb of Jesus is a common burial site into which hundreds and thousands and millions of others are buried together with him. And that's the language in the original. It's even stronger than what we find in the King James. The King James says we are buried with him by baptism into death. But it's really stronger than that. We are buried together with him by baptism into death. Together with him. And then verse 5, planted together in the likeness of his death. We've been planted, as it were, in that tomb, bound up in Christ, in his death, in his burial. We need to understand this, beloved. We need to understand that Christ did not die merely to give us a good example. He did not die merely as a man who was willing to pay the ultimate price for his convictions. He was not an ancient Gandhi 
He was not an ancient Martin, Martin Luther King Jr. who became a martyr for a particular cause and who became a symbol for those he left behind. If that were the case, it would make no sense to talk about baptism as our burial together with Christ and our being planted in the likeness of his death. Then we must simply stand outside the door of his tomb and beat our breast and walk away. But Christ did not merely die to give us a good example, an example that we could never follow, not perfectly. But he died as our substitute. He died to pay the wages of sin, which we and our children could never pay ourselves. And his death indicates that he paid them. He paid them in full. He was cut off from the land of the living as he was suspended between heaven and earth on the cross bearing the curse. He was forsaken of God as hell swallowed him up in the darkness. He died. He died not only in a symbol. He died not only in a vicarious sense, but he died actually in reality, historically. He died bearing the full reality of death with all of its horrors, including death and hell, including that most extreme element of death. The burial of baptism testifies then that we are dead and buried together with him. Not, of course, that we literally traveled back in time to be embalmed in his tomb, but by a mystical union through the Spirit of Jesus Christ. We are united to Jesus Christ in his death and in his burial so that his death is our death and his burial is our burial. And therefore, when God looks down upon us and when God looks down upon His children, His covenant children, His infants who are baptized, He sees the wages of sin having been paid in them, paid in full. He sees thousands and millions of bodies buried in a grave. But because they are buried together with Christ, they do not belong there anymore. Their punishment is finished. It's fulfilled. And therefore, he justifies them. Beloved, this morning, or this evening rather, we have not come to church for a funeral. Though baptism testifies of our sinfulness and of our worthiness of death and of the sinfulness and worthiness of death of our children, its primary testimony is that our death and burial in Christ truly is history. It's an accomplished reality. We are dead and buried in Christ. And the waters of baptism are only the sign and seal which point us back to our death and burial in Christ. Death and burial by itself would be an occasion for sorrow and misery, but death and burial together with Christ is justification in the sight of God. It is the forgiveness of our sins. It is redemption accomplished. And how comforting that truth is 
when we do have to attend a funeral for those who sleep in Jesus, even if the coffin has been built and shaped for the size of a little infant, or when it is our son or our daughter or our brother or our sister who is buried, perhaps even before a child has the opportunity to come into church and be baptized, perhaps even in the darkness of his mother's womb. Our little children may without their knowledge be partakers of the condemnation in Adam, but so are they without their knowledge again received unto grace in Christ, buried with him in his baptism, and when his death and burial is their death and burial, the little coffin and the little grave in which we may have to lay them can only be a passageway that opens up into life and brings them closer to Christ who died and was buried for them. And that brings us to the purpose of the burial of baptism. And the purpose of the burial of baptism is not death or to bring an end of life. But the purpose of the burial of baptism is resurrection. If we were to practice baptism by immersion, there would be a moment when that person who is baptized disappears from sight. But as soon as that person disappears, they will reemerge, clean and glistening, out of the water. The picture of death and burial disappearance beneath the water gives away immediately to the picture of resurrection and life which follows, which is why baptism is called the, wash, the washing of regeneration in Titus 3, verse 5. The washing of regeneration, the washing that gives new life. The children know the rest of the story of Jesus. The body of Jesus was taken down from the cross by Joseph and Nicodemus. It was wrapped in the linens. It was laid in the tomb. There it lay in darkness for three days and three nights until that body rose from the dead on Sunday morning. And when Jesus appeared alive to his disciples, they could see there was something new about him. There was something different about him. This wasn't the same Jesus that they had walked with. It was the same Jesus, but it was that Jesus alive again, alive with a new life, changed. What is the implication of this for those who are buried together with Christ in baptism? Is it that one day their bodies also will, ra will be raised from the dead on the day of the resurrection? That is certainly true. And that is a mighty comfort for parents who stand by the graves of their children to know that those bodies will reemerge from those graves one day alive and glorified with beautiful bodies like the body of Christ. 
And that's a comfort to every Christian who faces death, that they can expect the resurrection from the dead and the glorification that comes with the resurrection from the dead. But notice, the text does not draw the lines of comparison between Christ's resurrection and our final resurrection, although that comparison is found elsewhere in Scripture, for example, in 1 Corinthians 15. But this text, Romans 6, makes a different comparison Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as, there's the comparison, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, there's that historical resurrection of Christ and newness of life, even so we also should walk in newness of life. The application of this text is not so much for the future resurrection, the application of this text is for the child or the adult who is baptized right here, right now, today, living in this age, in this body, in this valley of tears. Just as Christ emerged from his grave alive, so you emerge from the burial of baptism, walking in newness of life. Baptism, therefore, declares to you and your children, you are not dead anymore, but alive. And you must think of yourself as such. Verse 11, Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Verse 12, Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither, verse 13, yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those who are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, but you are not under the law, but under grace. You are alive. The burial of baptism gives way to the resurrection, the regeneration of baptism. And that's the purpose. Beloved, as important as it is to be justified, and make no mistake, it is dreadfully important to be justified. But as important as that is, justification is only the gateway. A prisoner who is declared innocent by a judge does not stay in the courtroom. He walks out the door, and he walks out the door as fast as he can, and he begins to live again, free from the chains, free from the bars that previously held him, free from the sentence that was upon him. So when Christ was raised from the dead for our justification, he did not stay in the tomb with the marks of death on him. He left the tomb immediately, and he set his sights on the life of heaven that was now his. And it is no different when we are buried together with Christ in baptism. We do not stay under the water. The whole point of plunging us in the first place was for that moment when we would emerge again, alive as new creatures. The text makes this purpose relationship explicit. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death. That, that's a purpose clause, that, like as Christ was raised up from the dead, even so we also should walk in newness of life. The word that is in order that. It is a purpose clause. Christ was not raised 
so you can have peace with God while remaining in the darkness of the tomb. Christ was raised so that having peace with God, you might stand up and walk out of the tomb and live in the land of the living like as Christ did. And this is why the accusation of antinomianism carries no weight. In verse 1, the apostle echoes the accusation that he was hearing being lodged against him and his teaching regarding justification by faith alone, through grace alone. That accusation was this. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Since we are justified freely by God's grace, shall we continue in sin? This was the question of the Pharisees. This was the question of the Judaizers who said that Paul's teaching of justification will give men an excuse to live in sin. It is also a conclusion that we sometimes come to ourselves when we want to rationalize our sinful behavior. Ah, God will forgive me. God will forgive me if I dabble in this sin. After all, I'm justified by faith alone, through grace alone. Therefore, it doesn't matter how I live. Therefore, it doesn't matter what I do. The answer of the apostle to that accusation and to that question is this. Did you not understand what I just said? Do you not understand what justification means for you? Justification means you are legally dead to sin. Baptism in a symbol placed you inside the very tomb where your sin was dead and buried in the body of Christ. And there your sin remains. The guilt and the power of sin in you has been destroyed. Are you now going to crawl back into that tomb and wrap yourself back in those linen burial rags? Are you now going to keep trying to incite war with God by a life of sin when He has declared Himself to be at peace with you in Christ? God forbid. God forbid we should come to such a conclusion. God forbid that we should live by such a principle. The testimony of the Gospel and the testimony of baptism is that we are alive and free. And when we understand that, we will have no desire to return to the grave. That desire will be killed in us, mortified, put to death. And a new desire quickened and made alive in its place. Since we baptize our infants, and rightfully so, the text speaks to the way we must think of them also. We do not regard our children as spiritually dead heathen who are in need of regeneration. We regard them as spiritually alive in Jesus Christ, capable of battling against sin and battling against sin with success, capable truly of yielding themselves unto God. If we are not able to regard our children as spiritually alive, beloved, we have no business baptizing them. For baptism is burial, and resurrection in Jesus Christ. Now, of course, we don't presume that every child who is baptized in the water will also be raised up to newness of life in Jesus Christ. But we do believe 
that such will be the case for those of our children whom God has promised to save, that is, the elect of our children. And therefore, we baptize them and we regard that baptism as a sign and a seal of the work of Christ in them. A work that gives life and freedom. So easy, beloved, to write off the sinful behavior of our children as if this were just natural and to be expected. Well, that's just how kids are, we might say. They get into fights. Sometimes they act bratty. Well, baptism does not allow us to make excuses for our children any more than it allows us to make excuses for ourselves. It declares something different about them. Reckon, therefore, your baptized children as dead unto sin would be the application of this text unto them. Reckon them as dead unto sin and alive unto Christ. Don't you know? This is what we might say to our children as parents. Don't you know, my daughter, that you are dead and buried to your sins? Don't you know, my son, that Jesus Christ has raised you from the dead? That's why you were baptized. And that's what that baptism says to you. Yes, we must lead our children to the cross and teach them of the peace of God that is theirs through the blood of Jesus Christ. But then expect from them that they will begin to live a new life and that they will begin to make progress in that new life. For they have been buried with Christ by baptism that they should walk in newness of life as His children. Now, the power of the burial of baptism is also taught in the text. And might not be what we're expecting. It's rather an interesting thought. The power of the burial of baptism and the new life, rather, that our children live in is the glory of the Father. Therefore, we are baptized with Him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. And we might add, by the glory of the Father. Jesus lived His whole life in obedience to His Father from the time of His childhood till the time of His death. Jesus' death on the cross was done in perfect obedience to His Father and attained a perfect satisfaction for all the sins of His people that had been laid upon Him as their representative and as their head. Therefore, when Jesus was dead and laid in that tomb, He was buried as the one person in all of history, in all of time, who had ever paid the wages of sin in full and who had therefore merited eternal life from God. And it was only just and right and proper then that God should come down into that tomb and fill that dead body of Jesus with His glory and raise that dead body of Jesus back to life. That was the result of everything that Christ had accomplished as the mediator. Now, the Father gave Jesus what He had earned. 
gave Jesus what was his due, filled him with his own glory, restored that dead body back to life, the life of heaven. He was exalted then in his resurrection life is a life of exaltation and glory as he walks before the face of his heavenly Father. Now the amazing truth of the gospel is that the same glory of the Father now raises us also from the dead. Because we are buried together with Christ by baptism into his death, it is only just and right and proper that God should come down into our spiritual depravity and create life there where before there was only death. God does this by the Spirit of Christ when He regenerates us and when He causes that seed of regeneration to grow and to develop and to blossom in word and deed as we walk now in newness of life. Thus the second benefit of justification is that we begin to walk in that new life, in newness of life. And there's a glory in that, beloved. This is the beginning of our glorification. This is the beginning of that exaltation that God has prepared for us and gives to us through Christ. Christ, of course, is exalted as the head but as the members of his body who are so intricately united to him that we are buried with him in his death and raised with him in his life, that glory also becomes ours. Now we have it in seed form. Now we have it only in a small beginning. Eventually we will have it in its final form, in the resurrection from the dead. But we do have it. We have it now. Our children have it. The power of the glory of the Father is operative in us. And therefore, this work of the Father raising Christ and raising up all who are in Christ in His name brings great glory to Him. It would be one thing if God simply gave us peace through the knowledge that our sins are forgiven for the sake of Christ's merits, but He gives us so much more. He's bountiful, flowing out of this benefit of justification, flowing out of this peace with God that we have through our Lord Jesus Christ. He gives us also a new life that we live in heart, mind, and soul. Only God has the power to do that. Only God. And therefore, as we look at this new life in ourselves and in our children, we don't brag about it. We don't boast about it. We don't attribute it to ourselves. We certainly don't trust in it. But we say, all glory to God. All glory to my Father who buried me, planted me in the likeness of the death of Christ so that I might also live with Him and in Him and by His power walk in newness of life. Beloved, that's that's the Christian life. That's the Christian experience. Is death, burial, and resurrection to the glory of God the Father. May we believe it. May we teach it to our children. Amen. Let's pray.
Our Father who art in heaven, we thank Thee for this gift of the burial of baptism. We give Thee thanks that we may know ourselves to be dead in Christ, the wages of sin to be paid in full, that we live under grace, so that now, by the power of Thy Spirit in us, we may walk in a new life, a new and holy life, and we may begin the resurrection life in a seed form, in a beginning form. This is a great benefit to us and our children. We pray, cause us to grow in it, to develop in it, and to give Thee all the glory for it. Forgive our sins and hear our prayer for Jesus' sake.